This episode is sponsored by 5.11, a company that I've used for well over a decade and continue to use to this day. And 5.11 is offering you guys, the audience of the Behind the Shield podcast, a discount on every purchase you make with them. Before we get to that code, I want to highlight a couple of products that, again, I personally use today. One of the most impressive products they just released is their Rush Backpack 2.0. Now, for many of you, whether you're going to the fire station, the police station, whether you're traveling with your family, whether you're taking training courses, we have to fly, we have to drive, we have to take trains. And I have to say, I own multiple backpacks, many of uh, 5.11's different ones, but as far as a day pack, this one was the most impressive. There are so many different compartments. The way it sits on your back is incredibly comfortable. If you are a concealed carry person, there's also a spot for a weapon. So they've thought of multiple, multiple things that a man or woman would have to do on a daily basis. That is in addition to all of the products that I talk about a lot. Their uniforms fit for men or fit for women in the first responder professions. The footwear that they offer, whether it's the Norris sneaker or the Atlas system that is designed for foot health and therefore knees and back and hips and shoulders and neck. As a civilian, I live in a lot of their clothes as well. Their jeans stretch. You can actually squat down in them. We live in Florida here, so I wear a lot of their shorts, which again, very, very lightweight material. You can get it wet and it will dry almost immediately. And then moving to the fitness and tactical space, I used to have just a regular weight vest. Recently, I switched to a 511 vest and actually bought ballistic plates as well. My thinking was simply, if I'm going to have a vest, why not have one that protects me as well? And that TAC vest is trusted by law enforcement all around the country. So I mentioned they were going to offer you a discount code. So if you go to 511tactical.com and enter the code SHIELD15, S-H-I-E-L-D-1-5, you'll get 15% off not just that one purchase, but every time you visit their store. And if you want to learn more about 5.11, their mission, their products, then listen to episode 338 of the Behind the Shield podcast with the CEO and founder, Francisco Morales. Welcome to episode 565 of the Behind the Shield podcast. As always, my name is James Gearing, and this week it is my absolute honor to welcome back on the show, Seb Lavoie. Now, Seb was my guest on episode 354, and in that conversation, you will hear that he reached an incredible pinnacle as a tactical athlete within the Canadian Mounted Police. Sadly, Seb recently had a medical event that potentially could claim one of his legs. So we discuss a host of topics, including the physical and mental challenges of not only potentially having an amputation in your future, but also this entire process happening during covid so before we get to this incredibly powerful conversation, as I say every single week, please just take a moment, go to whichever app you listen to this on, subscribe to the show, leave feedback, and leave a rating. Every five-star rating truly does elevate this podcast, making it easier for others to find. And this is a free library for you, planet Earth. So all I ask in return is that you help share these incredible men and women's stories so I can get them to every single person who needs to hear them. So with that being said, I welcome back Seb Lavoie. Enjoy. Well, Seb, I want to start by saying thank you so much for coming back on the Behind the Shield podcast. It's been a hell of a year for a lot of people. It's been 
an incredibly testing time for you personally. Obviously, we'll get into that. But for everyone listening, our first episode was episode 354. And I re-listened to it before I sat down today and was blown away just at how how powerful an episode it was and how much was crammed into that two hours. So um, I want to tell everyone listening first to go listen to that if you haven't yet. And then, and then, um, you know, come back to this one. But I want to welcome you back to the podcast. Thank you very much. Yeah, if you're still awake after the first one, you can listen to this one. <laughs> <laughs> no, I mean, again, your perspective, you know, the, the professions that you've been in, the roles you've held, the fitness levels that you achieved, your, your, you know, martial arts background. I mean, there really was so much in there. So for everyone listening, where on planet Earth are we finding you today? Well, as luck would have it, I'm uh, exactly where I was the first time. So in Coquitlam, British Columbia, which is uh, a little bit east of Vancouver. Beautiful. Now, again, we delved into your, you know, timeline quite a lot. But if you want to give us just a quick summary of your, you know, your, um, the professions that you were in and then, you know, when you transitioned out. Yeah, so I spent, um, I guess, 23 and a half years between the military and the Royal Canadian Mountain Police. I spent almost half of that in in tactical operations. I was a team leader on the Lower Mainline Emergency Response Team here in the Vancouver area. And I was the divisional sergeant major um, for the province of British Columbia, which came to an end in March of 2021. Mid-COVID pandemic, I decided to pull the plug and um, pursue some meaningful business endeavors with my company, Raven Strategic, which is primarily a, a consulting company. Brilliant. So what I would have to do first, obviously there's, there's a lot of different tangents that we're going to find ourselves on, but one reoccurring theme is whether it's someone in the military, police, fire, you know, whatever, we identify as that profession. And I see a lot of our men and women struggle when they transition out of that. They've lost their tribe, they've lost their purpose, and they really haven't. But there's a, there's a, there's a kind of facade that we've lost all of that. Um, so what was that transition out like for you? Interesting question. I, I actually never, never really saw it like that uh, and that I try to purposefully avoid some of the pitfalls of getting in the profession, which was putting too much value on the uniform side, putting too much value on being out there on the road doing the, you know, operational things with up with meaningful people. Um, but um, there was a lot more to Seb's personality, to my personality, as I was growing up through the teams, as, as I was, you know, um, during my professional, during my career, really, um, there was a lot more, it was multifaceted. So every time it, it would definitely be a part of me, but it certainly wasn't me. So when that happens and that's kind of kept in check a little bit, um, if things don't go according to plan and if there's a, a career change or if there is an injury or if there is, you know, anything really, uh, you can now continue on, on different courses on which you're already on, you're already on like various paths, but it doesn't take away your identity, you know, and, and you lose your identity, you lose your purpose. Um, very, very difficult to um, kind of overcome that. So for me, it wasn't, it wasn't a big issue to be honest in terms of transitioning out. 
aside from financially with the things being different, right? Like you, you don't have a regular paycheck coming in and all these fantastic things that we take for granted, especially mid pandemics when people are losing their jobs. And, and so it was definitely a bit risky. Now, when you calculate a risk. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Now, when you look back, what were some of the things that you put in place? What were some of the different philosophies that you had that allowed you to remind yourself that you were Sebastian Lavoie, not just, you know, a mounted policeman? Yeah, I mean, you know, it, it goes it goes to the hobbies and the things that you like to do. Like I spend a great deal of time on the mats and doing jiu-jitsu. And, I, you know, I co-own a club. I had a, 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 a few CrossFit uh, g- gyms. So I have, a, I owned a few CrossFit gyms at the time, none of which I still own, but, um, but I was keeping myself busy in other things. I was also developing sort of the intellectual side, making sure I was reading a lot, making sure I was my, um, my, um, relationships were with people that were in, but also outside of the profession and people that were completely different from me in, in many, in many ways, um, similarities, evidently, otherwise you would find nothing in common. But, um, and so there was always a constant flow of activities, you know, in my life that drew me upon various things that weren't work, you know? And then when I, when I was sitting down to watch TV or to watch a movie or I wasn't watching a cop movie and I wasn't watching CSI and I wasn't, you know, I, I, I try to disconnect and I really make a conscious effort to do other things, to see other things, you know, as we like to say in policing, you see, you know, 99% of the time you're seeing the worst and it's really the 1% that you are dealing with. So you're hundred percent bad things that you are seeing are actually 1% of what's actually occurring out there, you know? So it gives you a real professionally induced cynicism and jaded kind of mindset at times where you need to realize that this isn't reality. So how do we, how do we drive this home? So I never forget, you know, so to speak. So that's sort of what I seem to have had some success doing. Now, where did you find the optimism, the kindness and compassion that balanced some of the things that you were seeing while you were wearing the uniform? I don't think I had to look very far. I was always a very compassionate person. Um, I What I did do, though, is I had a tendency that I could have been going the other way, which is emotionally overinvest in a variety of different things that I saw and did. And um, that's kind of where my boundaries were, I had to look internally and go, are you being regularly invested or are you being emotionally over-invested in this? And if you are, what can we do to help problem solve whatever it is that's causing you angst, but without compromising my own, the integrity of my own wellness, if that makes sense. You know, you're not wearing the world's uh, pain. Absolutely. Yeah. And I think that's, that's the other side. You get, you know, compassion fatigue where there's, you know, some people in uniform find themselves losing that compassion. And I think, you know, I found myself almost the other way where I was kind of super empathetic where, yeah, you know, you, you end up taking on, I think the, the character in the green mile, you know, he's taken on everyone's pain. That's kind of how I saw a lot of uh, my career. It's like at some point you got to get that out. Yeah, I couldn't agree more. And unfortunately, unlike the character in the Green Mile, you don't have the opportunity to give it to some dirtbag, you know, and to, share, <laughs> to share the load, share the load, so to speak. Yeah, I'll take a trip to DC every four years. <laughs> <laughs> 
unless you get Tulsi in there. Well, exactly, exactly. Well, let, let's talk about that for a second. Yeah. I yeah. I was introduced to her really. Credit where credit's due. I think it was Joe Rogan that kind of made me think about her because there was a there was a point where he got on like Dan Crenshaw, Bernie Sanders. So some interesting people gave him a full you know hour and a half plus to talk, and I was like, huh. I understand this. I still don't agree. You know, I wouldn't vote for you, but I understand you now. Thank you for that, you know. But Tulsi was someone I'm like, okay, this sounds like the kind of person that I talk about, this mystical unicorn that is, you know, middle of the road, you know, strong when we need to be, but not out there seeking war. You know, obviously understanding there's a lot of people that make a lot of money when our men and women are sent to war. Um, you know, I'm sure that she'd probably be progressive in what we discussed in the last episode, maybe looking at drug prohibition and some of these things that are, you know, crippling both our communities and our economy. So yeah, I was hugely impressed. So talk to me about your perspective of her. Mm -hmm. I don't know a whole lot about her aside from um, I was watching a Jocko. A jo yeah, I believe it's the Joe Rogan, the same, probably the same one as the, the, you watch um, the uh, Joe Rogan and Jocko one. Uh, that was my first introduction to her. And then I started following her on Instagram and listening to some of the sound bites and some of the bits that she puts out. Um, evidently, very, very impressive uh, candidate, you know, by all account, I think one of the one of the challenge that always is a challenge is it's it's easier at times for her to have a, a solid position right now where she is because she's not balancing nearly as much as when you have the two sides looking up at you you know going okay what are you doing for us now it, it's not just so it's not <laughs> I, I would never go and say that uh, being the president of the united states would be absolutely terrifying of a job like who would want that but definitely if anybody can do it and if anybody can have that measured approach and and it's interesting because you're you're speaking about war and and her and her not wanting to go to war it's interesting how people that have seen war are generally less inclined to go back you know and and and, and to make some more calculated and strategic decisions whereas some of the stuff that's flying in washington right now is completely asinine you should lose your job for even proposing some of the stuff that's coming down the pipe, right? And she she's being very vocal about it. I mean, find me a more balanced individual. And for Christ's sake, she's she's a woman too. And 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 you know, there hasn't been a, a, a woman president. And it's not that there has to be, but she just so happened to be one. You know, like she is fantastic, and she just so happened to be a woman. So by all means, like give her a shot, do something with that. I mean, and I think in terms of comparing the past candidates, even for the last the last couple of years and her, I think she's a million light years away, both intellectually and, uh, you know, just some background. Absolutely. So, yeah. And she's I not think one she, foot think, in the grave, too. No, <laughs> I, and I just, no exactly. <laughs> she is extremely articulate. She is very smart. I just, I just love to listen to her. And, um, yeah, I do, I do believe that, or, or I, I heard a little bit about her foreign policies and whatnot, and it's not really my cup of tea. I, I listen and I try to, you know, get from it as much as I can. But um, seems like she's got her head screwed on real, real straight. Yeah. Well, and I'm not, you know, well versed in politics at all. But it just to me, everything comes back to kindness and compassion. Now, that kindness and compassion may mean taking a strong stance when it comes to some threats to the country, but it also could be, you know, looking at some of the things that we've done, whether it's drugs, prisons, whatever, 
and you know maybe reinventing that you know maybe looking at better ways of doing that and i think that's just it if if we focus on minutia that that people talk about then we miss the biggest thing what's truly better for our children what makes them safer what makes them healthier what makes them you know excited to learn you know um versus oh well in china if they do this then you know this is my policy well let's get back to our communities first that's not you know there's people that do worry about china but joe blow down the street is not going to be able to affect that in any way shape or form but his kids go to school we can affect the exercise that they get the kind of food that's given to them the kind of education they get you know the kind of playtime that they get the safety of the roads these are things that we can affect and these are things that we need to be talking rather than are we going to put a man on freaking mars <laughs> Yeah, I try to focus on those three general areas, you know, like how much emotional investment or how much investment of my own person am I going to put in certain things? And generally, it's uh, directly proportionate with directly in my sphere of influence. I have some influence over or I completely don't. And and my attention decreases as we're going towards I have no influence over this, you know, so to speak. So another good way to stay mentally uh mentally good to go is to is to make sure to not over invest in the in the things that we actually can't change anything about and that's sometimes very very difficult well you mentioned about you know some of the things that are coming down down the pipe at the moment one thing i would just like to touch on and obviously this won't be the focus of our conversation but i had had someone from um the royal canadian mountain police reach out about their jobs being threatened by mandates. Now, this is something I did a episode on a while ago. Um, as I tell the people, I myself am vaccinated. I'm certainly not anti-vax. But fast forward to now, the efficacy of the vaccines that we hoped was going to happen clearly isn't. You know, sadly, the safety is uh, a concern. Um, you know, a one person removed family member of mine who his, his girlfriend, um, suffered a medical emergency and passed away and she had just been vaccinated recently and she was young and you know so that's terrifying was that a cause i don't know but you know these things seem to happen again and again and again so when you get to a responder who has served for decades and you tell them if you don't take this vaccine otherwise you know we're going to fire you we're going to take away your job as a vaccinated middle-of-the-road person, I think that's completely disgusting. So um, I was just going to kind of give you the mic on any of thoughts you have on that that concept at the moment. Yeah, um, I, I stayed, you know, fairly away from all COVID conversation over the last two and a half years for various reasons. Um, but more importantly, because it's literally taken over our lives and the 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 casualties um however unfortunate they are um do not warrant us hijacking our entire you know life over this pandemics i believe that we've we've done it we've done the numbers on our mental health we've done a, a numbers on a variety of different fronts um and wh whether whether or not it was warranted is uh, is arguable but um but i will say this it's not just first responders it's anybody who's threatened with being fired you know it's it's a it's a horrible situation right now that that we're in and it's a first that we are being forced so to speak or something like that is being mandated and that the repercussions of not doing so are um, so critical right so so I, I i'm vaccinated myself as well it's a personal choice i've never taken the flu vaccine 
this was the first time that I've taken one um, as if evidently affected every single aspect of my life and I needed to travel and needed to do certain things that you can only do if you are vaccinated. So I did do it and I respect those who do and I respect those who don't. I also know that I don't know anything about what I put in my body, nor do I know anything about all the other things that I put in my body, you know, as recommended by doctors over over the years. So um, there's there's a bit of a leap of faith in there. Ultimately, for me, none of us is coming out of this alive. So I, I don't dwell on things if, if things go sideways or things go pear-shaped. Sometimes, um, it, you know, I wasn't trying to extend my time, you know, like it just happened. Like, what are you going to do? You're, you're taking a left. You're making a left. This happens. You're making a right. This happened. You go in the middle. This happens. Like, none of us is, is coming out of this unscathed, right? However, just to to go back to the the topic at hand, um, definitely forcing anybody to to take it is is uh, is not cool at all. And firing people for failing to do so is even less of a you know it, it's less cool. <laughs> <laughs> really? Yeah. No. I I share the same thing. I mean, you know, I think I've had one of my friends on who's a physician. He did an excellent episode on all the pros of vaccination and all, you know, the groups that are vulnerable and what he's seeing in his ER and ICU and, you know, how the actual people that were dying were nearly all unvaccinated people. So, you know, when you have, let's be honest, you know, a morbidly obese, inflamed, very sick population, that's probably a, a good tool for, you know, symptom reduction, definitely, you know, but it's not the be all and end all, you know, mega vaccine that we we hope for none of us you know i don't think anyone was like oh bait and switch we've got the perfect one here we're going to give them the crap one no but you know if if you haven't got something that's truly doing what we hoped it would do then it really makes the mandates even more ridiculous because many of us who got vaccinated now we find out we can still catch covid we can still pass covid so it's not the magic bullet that they initially thought no, exactly. I mean, if it was as effective as initially thought, just imagine how easy it would be to make that counter argument, right? It's like, yeah, we've lost a few people along the way, but we have saved how many by the effectiveness of this vaccine, by by the fact that it's, you know, um, highly potent and, and working and doing the things that it's supposed to do. Whereas if 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 there is examples of this going the other way completely and 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 now we're starting to lose that credibility piece in terms of risk assessment because there's other things that play in the in in the balance such as you know the mental wellness the drug abuse and all these other things so now you're increasing uh, you know the risk of other things in relation to the same pandemics it, it becomes a it becomes a bit of a crapshoot here so yeah no i i i agree 100 percent if 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 it was as effective as previously thought by all means do what you have to do and and some people are not going to fare well with it and so be it that's the same with anything right but absolutely well speaking of other things to be concerned about you know i mean there, there can be as you touched on the obesity related diseases mental health stuff um talk to me about you know a surgical procedure that you decided to get and then i'm just going to give you the mic for a while walk me through the you know, one in a million reaction that you had and then your journey up to where we are now. Mm -hmm. Yeah, so um, 
Yeah. So I had a, a minor uh, surgery done in, in my calf compartment um, on the left side. And um, this was really, you know, ridiculously sort of to address, to address an imbalance and, 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 um, and that imbalance wasn't critical, but it was just cosmetic and the option was there and the risk was very, very low. And I, so I decided to go ahead and do that. And um, that was on August 25th of this year. On August 26th, and I'll spare you all the details. I mean, there's there's so much to the development of what happens next. But um, essentially what happened is I developed a condition called uh, compartment syndrome. And this is essentially when the muscle compartment, the muscle within the muscle compartment starts swelling to the point where it exceeds the capacity of the fascia, which is the pouch or the pocket around the muscle. Um, this exceeds the size. So now what it starts doing it is essentially um, uh, cuts the blood flow to the muscles and also neurological, you know, it affects the nerves and, and, and by increasing the pressure within the compartment. And so unfortunately for me, my, my pain threshold is quite, quite elevated. And, and as a, as a result of that, I felt like the pain I was feeling was, uh, ancillary to the surgery I'd gotten, right? So there was supposed to be a certain amount of pain. So I felt that that must be it. But really what was going on is my calf muscle was now three times the size and it was fully compressed. And uh, there was a few, you know, medical this and that in between that prevented uh, the the righteous diagnosis of this until it was almost like 26 hours later. So one of the one of the key one of the key uh, fixes for compartment syndrome is a, especially for me in my case it was an acute compartment. There's there's two there's chronic compartment syndrome and then there's acute compartment syndrome where the onset is really really hard and fast and we are looking down the barrel of a uh, pretty intrusive procedure called a fasciotomy, where they essentially open the muscle the the fascia up so that the muscle can ooze out until the muscle regains its size and then they put it back in and they close it up and you should be good to go if you weren't in compression for too long. Unfortunately for me, having been in compression for 26 hours, it, it, it essentially killed my left calf muscle, the muscle bundles, like not just one, but the, the a, a, a big bundle of them in, in that compartment, including um, some of the bigger, larger muscles in the calves. Not that mine were large in any way, shape, or form to begin with. But um, And so over the course of, say, between August 26th to October 1st, I had nine surgeries. Most of them were to remove necroded tissue, necroded muscle or dead muscle. So every one of those procedures uh, is called a debridement was to serve the purpose of removing the dead tissue out of my leg. So now uh, the the wound is closed. I had a catastrophic size wound, as you saw on my on my left leg. Now the wound's been closed since October first, and we are waiting for three months. So that's January, roughly, um, to see if there is any life returning to my tibial nerve and a variety of other nerves that I had in there that we perceived might be dead um for lack of a better term and so january is kind of the the date that 
it will be decided whether or not we are so if the nerves have returned and there's enough um, there's enough health there we we may be launching in a series of reconstructive surgery now those reconstructive surgeries could be as many as as i already had could be eight or nine we don't know and so this could take you know two to three years who knows how long and for what level of functionality if the nerves and i'll get back to that in a second but if the nerves are not returning then we may be looking at an amputation below the knee which let's call a spade a spade i'm totally good with at this point i would even likely take it over three years of reconstructive surgery at my age here and 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 with the outcome being so um uncertain right so it's going to be a cooperative, I'm hoping, it's going to be a cooperative approach to problem solving that once we meet in January with the specialist and see where where the leg is. Now, the easy scenario would be the nerves absolutely haven't returned, you know, so now it's black and white. The problem is if you've had some improvement, not substantial enough to make a call yet, but you have some improvement, so now you have to wait extra time and then wait some more. Um and so yeah, that's uh, that's been the uh, that's been my last uh, couple months. Uh, the leg, there's a lot of ancillary health issues that are coming with having such a serious neurological condition going on because there is a lot of neurological input and output firing everywhere, and I'm constantly you know itchy, and there's all kinds of different different things as a result of that condition that are making you just borderline unwell all the time you know and it's it's uh yeah it's it's been a treat for sure <laughs> that's an interesting choice of words <laughs> yeah <laughs> so when you know we spoke obviously numerous times between when it first happened and now um and you know i watched some of your posts as well and you'd basically do a post and kind of give everyone the the periodic um uh it, you know, update, I guess, for lack of a better word. But your your mindset and even some of your, your friends have said the same thing. Like, your mindset seemed incredibly strong compared to, say, for example, I'm sure mine. Um, you, you had an acceptance of what it was. You didn't appear to be focusing on blame. Ah, the surgeon did whatever. Um, when it came to the possibility of amputation, you seemed to have that it could be a lot worse mentality. So, you know, what was that mental road from I'm going in just to have, you know, um, symmetry in my calves to holy shit, I might lose my leg. Yeah. Mm. There, there was a bit of a disconnect there that needed to happen, right? You, you, the dwelling on the reason why I went there in the first place would be like buying a, a fast motorcycle and you go on your first ride and dump it and hurt yourself. Are you, are you looking back going, I should have never bought this motorcycle. I should have never tried to live in an, you know, an intense and full life. I shouldn't have, shouldn't have, couldn't have, would have, it really doesn't matter, right? So for me, essentially, I took the time to acknowledge that the irony of the situation that I propulsed myself into, you know, really. Um, but also what I needed to do was to go back to the risk assessment, to the initial risk assessment. So what I did is I went back to when I decided to do this, to address this, I did it 
knowing what the risk was, which was not very or not very common a situation like this. We're we're talking about extremely rare. In fact, a surgeon that uh, performed the surgery never had it in over 20 years and 400 procedures, uh, you know, in the same sort of vein, right? And so I can't, in life, we are going to take some risks so that we can have some fun and that we we can grow and we can be uncomfortable. And if I start second guessing every decent risk assessment that I've ever conducted, we're going to have some serious issues because a lot of the times logic would say, don't do this. There is a risk. But in this case, the risk was so extremely low that even looking back, I can't stop myself from doing it, you know? And so once, once that's clear in your head, it's easier to, it's easier to move on past that. Okay, that's already done. There is no going back to this. So now what? Right? I think dwelling on my on my original decision would have been an issue. So it's just about going back. What was the process that led you to making the decision to go in the first place? Boom, 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 boom. I come to the exact same conclusions, which means I would have done it again. Right? Obviously, knowing what I know now and hindsight being 2020 and all this good stuff. But it's about reasonable of, reasonableness of action, right? When when assessing risk, because uh, we can overassess risk on everything and just do nothing and stay put and hoping that lightning doesn't strike us, you know. Yeah, paralysis by analysis, as they call it. Yeah, absolutely. So yeah, it was. Uh, yeah, it, you know, it just I just flowed into. I allowed myself a couple of days to kind of be um, a little bit bummed out and 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 realized that you know my life as i knew it was now changed and the uh, foreseeably would never get back to what it was and so i had to make peace with certain little things in my head you know and and i had and i found some strategies on how to deal with that too i, I remember one of the doctors that came in and one of the things he'd said to me is um uh you, you know the are you a runner and I, and I said, no, we, I like to sprint. I always love to sprint. And I, I sprinted lots, you know, since I was a kid. And I'm actually pretty good at it for one of the things I can do. And, uh, and, and he said, yeah, you're likely never going to sprint again. And so that really affected me. And one of the, th- one of the things that I did with that was, hey, man, you've, you know, you've been beating people on sprints for 44 years give somebody else a chance, you know, <laughs> like I had to kind of sp- talk to myself, like a lot of people have never had the chance of having fast switch muscles and explosive, you know, out the gate and be able to generate a lot of speed. And I've had that my entire life. I've made a career out of it, so to speak. And, and, and now it's gone, but I've had it for all those years. So stop complaining. You know, I had to kind of, I had to self-police sort of where my mind was going with things, you know, to just realize you were lucky enough to have that for 44 years. Now you may not. Yeah. So be it. Well, it's interesting as well when you say that because I, I just posted a, a video and I actually want to get him on the show. There's a sprinter, Blake Leeper, who um, he's actually connected because he works with some of the amputee centers from some of the, the guests I've had on. They, they'd be at the same place. But he was, I think, congenitally born with no lower limbs. Um, and, uh, you know, you see footage of him and he talks about a story of uh you know running for a base in a baseball game but now he's you know one of the most elite um amputee sprinters out there and he has the prosthesis and you know is an absolute beast on the track so it's it's 
an interesting perspective because I hear this a lot from guests. We forget as medical professionals, obviously I'm in emergency medicine or was, um, but we got to be careful what we say because, you know, if, if it's unfounded, if there's hope that someone can actually overcome and my God, the adaptive community has taught us so much, then I don't think any physician should say you will never. I think that's a terrible choice of words for someone who's trying to figure out what their journey looks like. Yeah, I I tend to agree with this. I uh, thankfully I don't put a lot of I don't put a lot of uh, weight necessarily in sing in single statements like this, especially when I've already defied the odds and with some of my creatine kinase level that were completely insane, and I should have had kidney failure and I didn't, and and I was up and working out and doing certain things that foreseeably I shouldn't be able to. Uh, so I, you know, I didn't take it to the bank as soon as it was said to me, but um, it, it had to be a consideration. And I think he, he didn't say never, but likely never will do it. You know, like there's, there's a little bit of room there, but anyways, uh, you know, whether or not that was an accurate statement or, or even uh, a preparation for me on the, on the, on the emotional and the mental side, uh, it, it it actually helped me because I, I was able to get a bit of closure by, you know, thinking about how fortunate I had been all those years to be able to run as fast as I did and and those types of things. So I was it, it actually provided me with some coping mechanisms. And I was I remain cautiously optimistic that uh, I may prove you wrong. And and but just in terms of the prosthetic, you're absolutely right. And that's one of the reasons why. I've never shied away from that option because we're seeing, especially below the knee, uh, we're seeing, you know, lifestyle that are essentially what my lifestyle used to be, you know, 70% functionality or whatever, depending, I, I know it's individually dependent, but, uh, but you're seeing the blades and people running and sprinting and jumping and doing all the things that currently I cannot do. I can't even jump, you know, a, a one foot box right now. So, uh, yeah, at the end of the day, it's, I think a lot of people in the the medical community and a lot of people that I dealt with along the way were more concerned about what my body would look like optically with the leg attached to it and less concerned about the functionality piece, whereas I'm the only, the other way around. Yeah. I, I had a guest who was a high level fencer and became a police officer, was struck by a car assisting on a on a wreck and, uh, you know, lost his lower leg and was basically, I mean, his mindset reminded me a lot of yours. And he basically went through the crucible and was like, all right, let me see how I can figure out how to do all the things I used to do with this prosthesis. And it was funny because when he was talking to about, about the combative side, you know, there's some, obviously there's some, weakness there if you look at it anatomically but then his his instructor was like well yeah but don't forget if it if the shit hits the fan you can just take your prosthetic off and beat them with it (laughs) and he said like you know if he goes to a a, you know a house call and they go to slam the door he can just jam his foot in there he's like i can use it for dogs and i'm like okay i see your mindset so you know it was all upsides (laughs) (laughs) yeah somebody was on the organizational payroll (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> <laughs> no that's good i i love that i mean it's 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 been great for me as well having such capable friends and and people coming together to help me through this situation whether via the gofundme that was up at the time it was 
desperately needed, even though uh, it made me extremely uncomfortable. But also uh, having friends like high-level jujitsu people come over, sit next to me, and when I'm sitting in bed and you know here at home after returning, and and for them to sit there going, okay, if you if if your leg is gone, this is how we're go- we're going to mo- modify your game so that you are able to. And I've been watching videos, and they've been doing their own research, and everybody wants to kind of jump in and help. It's been uh, it's been great and very and truly telling on the mini- the meaningfulness of some of the relationships around you. Absolutely. And, uh, I'll, I'll never forget that. Well, Byron Branch was the name of the police officer. Anyone was listening and curious about that episode. So that reminds me of Mark Ormrod, who's a Royal Marine. Um, yeah, he lost, know you know, Mark, yeah, so both mm-hmm. legs and an arm and is an amazing jujitsu athlete, you know, and, and is part of the reorg organization. Um, so yeah, the, the adaptive community, what they've done is absolutely incredible. Um, and it reminds me the, the, the kind of thought process that you're going through at the moment reminds me of a stunt woman I had on the show, Olivia Jackson. And she was uh, filming one of the Resident Evil um, films and there was a, an error from the, the camera operator that she was barreling towards on this motorbike and the boom was supposed to raise up and kind of go over her and then film from the other side. Well, it never did. And so a bike slammed into this camera, you know, God knows what, 100 plus miles an hour and it sheared the the nerve plexus on the one side of her her body so she had this arm like anatomically it was healthy as far as it was getting a blood supply and everything but there was no innervation at all and so one of her the highlights of her whole journey was cutting her arm off you first you'd be like what are you talking about but she's like it was just a dead weight so by removing that arm that gave her so much more freedom and now I, i see videos where she's doing martial arts again she's riding again so she's you know she's getting that life back but what of course, in an ideal world, that limb would be functional and everything would be fine, but it wasn't. So seeing amputation as an actual, um, you know, uh, improvement of overall performance is such a hard concept to get around, but it's understandable when you listen to a story like hers, for example. Mm-hmm. Yeah, no, absolutely. I, I can totally, uh, I can totally relate to this. And the, the interesting thing that happens when once you go out with a statement like you know they may be removing the leg or they may be amputating or whatever the case may be people actually got mad at me and they were like you can't you can't speak like this it's you know it's it's uh, it's bad omen or whatever the case may be or my cousin went to panama and had stem cell you know injected in there for 175,000 and all this stuff and i'm like okay guys like time out here a, I don't have 175,000. Second, there are issues with going overseas and getting certain treatments as you return to your own country and having the ability to follow up on those treatments. Um, you know, there there is a there is a variety of different things that you could do always and try. It, it comes down to what what do I have to lose and how long and how long is it going to take? How much is it going to cost? Where do you know? There's a variety of different things that have to be put in that risk assessment to decide whether or not that's the right move for you and i and, and thank you know thankfully some people have the ability to do to do things like this and 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 salvage their own situation i just don't know if that's my reality right now so um like i said i'm not you know fatalistic or anything like that i'm up optimistly or cautiously op- op- optimistic but uh we shall see where it all goes but I'm prepared for any, any, almost any outcome other than keeping my limb as a dead weight. That is not a preferable outcome at all for me. So absolutely, especially if it's yeah. given you, like you said, you know, nerve innovations and things that are negative. 
oh yeah, I, I get major, you know, electrical shocks going down there and going everywhere. And then it made jujitsu very difficult as well, just because of the way I can't put my weight on my toes and a variety of different things. So it, it's, and I can't run, I barely, my walking, my gait is very seriously affected. And so there's a, there's, and now you know how it is, your gait's affected. So now it goes up to the knee and then it goes up to the hip and then now it's my back that's bugging me. And it's just, there's a variety of different things that need to be weighed in the balance to make the call. But uh, by thankfully people much smarter than me in conjunction with me. <laughs> <laughs> now, how have, how have you been able to program your training around the leg? Yeah. So what I did, and as you know, I've, you know, I've coached many athletes over the years and I've had gyms and everything. So it would have been easy for me to go back to what it is that I know, which is unfortunately what it is that I know. Right. So I wanted to reach out and, and, um, and get somebody, a professional to, to take that over from me so that I, all I had to do was to show up because there were so many areas of recovery that were needed to be, to be uh, put together and glued together by, you know, medical professional as well, um, it was critical that I didn't have to worry about that. And so I went to my trainer, my current trainer, shout out to AB at New Edge Alliance there. Um, just an amazing team. And uh, he's essentially built a custom-made strength program for me. And we're focusing on that right now. And especially since I'm no longer an operator, I don't really care about certain things and I don't care about having a bit heavier body mass in terms of because the application of my performance is a little bit different context now right so I don't care if I walk around at 215 I would have been too heavy for the team just in terms of trying to get all this to stick together while I can run and do all these other things whereas now I'm not so worried about you know the running and all these other things so um, I still do the cardio piece and everything and the, and the metabolic conditioning piece but um yeah, it's 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 been mostly strength building and my weight got back up really quickly when I came. So on August 25th, I was 205 when I when I checked in the hospital and I walked away from Toronto. Well, you know, metaphorically speaking, walked away <laughs> from Toronto. I was in a wheelchair, uh, walked away from Toronto 28 days later at 175. Wow. And so within three weeks of returning to the gym, I'd put on 20 pounds of muscle back, which is an incredible feat. And it certainly has nothing to do with me, has everything to do with the way my trainer addressed my training. And it was a good change for me as well, because historically, one of the things that I have done over the course of many, many years is to completely obliterate my central nervous system by smashing workouts day in and day out um, with little regards to things that necessarily weren't as intense. And uh, and I think that didn't always serve me well. I, I remember, you know, one, one guy on the team saying to me, you're the fittest person to always be tired physically. And, 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 it's, and, it, and it was true because I was exhausted. So I found that at times it affected my jujitsu. It affected, it affected me operationally even, you know, at times working out so hard that you end up working an extended shift for 19 hours on on a night shift or something and you end up you know just having a hard time just staying staying awake so to speak so um so i i, I feel like now we have a much better balance where the things that i do and i'm getting plenty of recovery and i'm getting 
and 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 I just feel like it's it's a better balance right now, and it it allowed me to feel probably as good as I can right now under the circumstances. Brilliant. Yeah, it's yeah. interesting because I'm actually I've taken a few weeks away from CrossFit classes, um, and I'm focusing on a program. I think it's ATG is what he calls it. But Ben Patrick, who's online, he's knees over toes guy. But you know my both my knees had surgery, meniscus, you know, snipped off, and I never fully healed. Well, I think they healed, but I never fully addressed the imbalance that caused the pain or the injury in the first place. And so I've been doing that. And it's an hour, you know, and it's it's strenuous, but it's tedious. It's not CrossFit. You're not flinging yourself around everywhere. But kind of like you're alluding to, taking that time, you know, taking the foot off the gas a little bit and addressing some of the imbalances, issues, or working around an injury, I think, you know, is as good, if not better, than just grinding, you know, week in, week out like you were before. Yeah, and just to be clear on that, I think our we're our own biggest enemy. This isn't about CrossFit. You know, this was about me. This was about me. Like, this is what I did when I got in the box. You know, other people scaled accordingly. Other people dialed down the intensity. Other people had the ability to be more measured in their approach to training. I didn't, you know, I went balls to the walls, so to speak, all the time. And uh, and so this isn't, you know, it's interesting, again, in the spirit of, of not being deflecting everywhere, um, a lot of people are blaming the, the workout program or whatever the case may be. CrossFit, I mean, is an easy target, you know, because of, of some of the more higher profile um, images or videos or whatever, right? But um, but the reality is that most people that get injured get injured because of their own egos. They show up in the gym, they try to do more than they should be doing, they or they push harder or they lift more because the person next to them. So there is a peer pressure element there that can be very valuable as a tool to train people, but it's also a double-edged sword in that it can really affect someone who's unable to to dial it down, you know? Yeah. So yeah. <laughs> no, absolutely. And I find that, that in myself, you know, I think you get two types of, you know, people and this is you know, not, neither is better or worse than the other, but you get the people that need to be motivated to exercise. And then you get the other group, which I think we're both in. I'm not saying I'm the same level as you, but as far as, um, you know, discipline and motivation that especially then you add in shift work and, you know, the adrenaline of the, the professions that we're in that we have to learn to do less. You know, less is more, you know, especially as I've talked about on here a lot from people I've learned, you know, you come off a stressful shift. That's not the time to do Fran or Murph or, you know, kill yourself on the, on the rower of, you know, 100 meter sprints. You know, that's the time to do the, the more de-escalating, deregulating, you know, just get blood pumping workouts. So, yeah, I mean, I found that in myself as well. The way I look at it now, there's times I go in the CrossFit and like, this is the workout of the day. All right, beautiful. All right, you're going to do 90%? No, I'm going to do 60%. You guys do 90%, you know? So, and it's, yeah, but it's, but it takes experience. It takes, sadly for me, injuries and burnout to really understand, okay, this is a, this is an undulating exercise journey you were on. And if you just hold your foot on the gas the whole time, you are going to explode at some point. Yep. No, there's, there's no denying that that's the case. So that's been a good change for me in terms of, um, in terms of, you know, getting back to not where I was before because I'm a different man, but getting this new, getting, getting the bar set as high as I can under the current circumstances. 
Yeah. Well, I think it's also important to hear when people, you know, do have an injury, lose a limb, whatever it is, and you hear the amazing journey that people put themselves on. There's a lot of people out there that don't have that an acute, you know, traumatic injury, but they roll an ankle. They, you know, they tear a knee, they pull out a shoulder, whatever it is. It's amazing how much you still can do without making that injury worse. Yeah, I think the propensity is to dial it right back and say, oh, I'm injured. I can't do this. Well, you're right. You can't do this specifically, but you can do all these other things. So you can get stronger, faster and better in other ways. You can also get smarter. You can also, you know, build a relationships. You can do all those things because there's a variety of different things you can refocus your, your, your energy on and you should. And so when you look back at your injury system, it actually became perhaps, um, the angular stone of, of, of a bunch of meaningful changes, you know, as a result of that situation. So you're looking at a bad situation that was turned completely on its head. And that also teaches your body and teaches you that when bad stuff happens, you can make good things happen out of them. So it's just a matter of finding that, that balance. Well, one more area that I want to touch on as far as, again, unforeseen um, illnesses or traumas that happen, I, thanks to you, was connected with uh, Paul Tiller, and he told his incredibly powerful story and obviously his wife's ALS battle. So I would just like to kind of revisit that and, and, and those guys through through your eyes. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so uh, Paul Tiller Sr. and Paul Tiller Jr., his son, uh, came to me uh, when I owned Sheepdog CrossFit many, many years ago, and I, I can't remember exactly how many years ago it was. I, I, I'm going to say nine-ish or around that. Anyways, nine or ten uh, for sure. It would have been around 2012. I, I, anyways, yeah, so they came to me. Evidently, everything was you know, normal. There was no, um, it, there was no inclined to even know that Linda was sick at the time and she wasn't i mean obviously she may have been internally but we had she hadn't been diagnosed formally and everything so we developed a re- truly meaningful relationship through just the coach athlete relationship and 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 all this good stuff and eventually um you know paul jr was i want to say 17 or 16 at the time he was like a walked in as a little stick and you know, had a 45 pound deadlift and, <laughs> and, and now he snatches 280, you know, just a beast. But, um, but we are looking at a couple years before she uh, gets sick and those guys dedicated their entire lives to caring for her. And one of the things that's critical to understand is that a senior actually was no longer was with Linda. Like they were separated, right? And yes, it was amicable and everything, but you got to think like caring for somebody you truly um, care for with such a in, such an engaging disease where you have to be engaged at all sort of phases of it. And as it get, as it's getting worse, it, it puts such a strain on people and on family, the caregivers, and, and, to, and to do that for your ex is pretty epic and um and i was uh, i bared witness to this on juniors uh, you know side of things and 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 with senior as well and both of them really caring for linda like in an incredible way and so eventually 
what happened was they had nutritional issues and, you know, Linda wasn't eating the, the way she should. She didn't have the proper nutrients and her resulting physical condition was getting worse or worsening. And, uh, and there was a lot of work and a lot of heart and a lot of incredibly righteous purpose, purpose behind developing Heal, which was the product that Paul came over and spoke to you about. And so just an incredible, a, a truly incredible story of, of selfless dedication um, as caregivers for many years and, and eventually what would become what I think will be a major breakthrough in um, in nutrition. Yeah, no, I agree. I mean, yeah, the, the powerful story behind that you know, is uh, you know, heartbreaking, but also inspiring. Was was Linda ever uh, um, an athlete at your gym? No, she was not. She she liked to come in and hang out and watch watch us do our things. I mean, she may have done a couple workouts. Yeah, I remember I remember her doing a couple workouts, but it was you know it was scaled accordingly and she she came just to get a sweat on and which was good because that's exactly what it should be um and uh but it wasn't a regular it wasn't really a regular occurrence okay yeah because i'm just curious mm -hmm. i don't know anyone yet who's coached um someone with als and you know what mm -hmm. the what would be the adaptive kind of lens that you'd look through that mm -hmm. there would in my case i would have to do a ton of research to make sure because I suspect the complexities are endless, right? So I suspect that in order, and I'm sure you can make it happen, but it would be a major learning experience. And fortunately and unfortunately, um, she wasn't diagnosed until years later and she was not engaged in the gym at the time. So, but who knows, who knows? I mean, she had her own things, you know, uh, physical training regiment uh, and, 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 and I, I don't know exactly where, if anything, could have been improved upon or that's a conversation I'd have to have with the, with the Pauls. Yeah, absolutely. Well, again, thank you for, uh, for, you know, connecting us and was able to tell that story or, or hear that story, should I say. And it was, uh, you know, one that everyone needs to listen to. Um, all right. Well, then I want to transition to what's next so we talked obviously about you know the physical mental element of of the the surgery but that's you know a minute amount of of your uh journey out of law enforcement so i know there were some things on the horizon that they're not quite ready to discuss yet so kind of what are the things that you're excited about what are some of the things that we should start looking for when it comes to the next few years Mm -hmm. so my company raven strategic um hasn't i really haven't I didn't dive down the route of the heavy marketing and everything because everything's been sort of word to mouth and it's worked out great. I don't even have a website right now. And ultimately what it is, is an umbrella where, where I can do meaningful things that I want to do, that I'm passionate about, take on various projects, whether it's in the consulting field or guest speaking opportunities or training opportunities. Like I have a, a breadth of experience that's, you know, lends credence to a variety of things that I can go out in the world and do. Um, it's just a matter of having a passion about the project. So I just came back from overseas. I went to Haiti, um, you know, worked out overseas. And I mean, it was on a short timeline. It was very time crunched and it was under pressure and I had to make things happen. It was really uncomfortable, which evidently 
created growth <laughs> uh, in me and and others, but it opened up, you know, possibility for other overseas work. If there are projects that I'm that I'm passionate about, there's a I'm working with a fantastic former special operator from the Canadian Forces by the name of Sean Taylor, and we are working on a book uh, currently, um, and we've done you know. We're we're putting a lot of effort on on each of our hand, each of our ends to 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 make that as good as it possibly can. So there's there's the book work, there's the consulting work, there's the performance coaching side. There, so it's Raven Strategic is kind of an umbrella under 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 which I can operate in all impunity and do things I want to do. And this was my primary reason for retiring. I you know sometimes I do things because. I wanted to. Most of the time, I did things because I had to, to paraphrase the uh, the stud in Gladiator. But uh, but definitely now, it's all about if I'm being given a project, even if it's outside my field of expertise, the networking abilities and the network that I grew over the years is just serving its purpose. And I can certainly, and it's a it's obviously a two way street. I'm not drawing on all my sources and not giving anything back. It's a two way street. But um, really trying to do meaningful things that I really want to do, and I won't be forced into anything I don't want to do. Beautiful. Now, do you have a, mm -hmm. a website for Raven Strategic? I do not. No. Okay. So everything has been on everything has been on Instagram. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so I have an I have an Instagram page which is Raven Strategic, well at Raven Strategic, and uh, and it's, it hasn't been updated in a while because I've been so busy and on the road everywhere. But uh, I will get on that. And well, and the medical condition, obviously, which was two months of me being off the air. So I'll be doing some catching up pretty soon here. But that's essentially what's been happening. You know, call me with something that fires me up and I will give you tier one excellence. Beautiful. Well, I want to touch <laughs> I want to touch on one more area before I let you go. In our previous conversation, I think it was right around the whole explosion in law enforcement, defund the police, all that stuff. Um, a year and a half has gone by since, you know, I'm seeing now funding coming back. I'm seeing sadly statistics of more violence in certain areas. And, and I love actually Mike Glover posted and to my surprise, and it's not really surprising, but it wasn't the focus on, oh, you, should, you know, it's the, the, the funding of the police. It was like, well, let's look at mental health and addiction and everything, which was beautiful. Cause I think that's exactly what we should be looking at. So have there been any perspectives or, or just, you know, uh, things that you've seen this last 18 months whether they're they're encouraging whether they're discouraging but just anything different than when we discussed 18 months ago well i think we're in a much more measured uh place at, at least in our country here i know i know you guys i was watching i was looking at some of the stats that tim kennedy had posted uh, and i don't know where those stats were sourced but if those are true some of the serious crime rises that you're experiencing across the country is terrifying, um, to say the least, and uh, and not shocking by any stretch of the imagination. We all knew what was going to happen. The only people that didn't know what was going to happen is the people that don't realize what we do on the daily. But um, And so I think that that will, will solve itself and that it will be undeniable as it has been. Now, one of the problems that I have with any of this is the lack of accountability. You know, nobody is going to go on the air and say, you know what, it was my idea to defund 
such department and now it's backfired on us and i my apologies we are going to refund the police we're going to do we're going to you know increase training we're going to do this we're going to do that it's never going to happen because they're shifting accountability and nobody has you know the fortitude to get in front of the camera and say and it's all about political survival and all about other it's very disturbing to see and it's a very disturbing trend that's why i i stopped looking at others for accountability i bring it with me in my pocket i have my accountability here and if i do something or say something and that i'm accountable for and that backfires i will be the first one to volunteer the information I'm not, you know, I'm not waiting for anybody to draw it out of me. And I just, I get very frustrated with um, the lack of accountability. It was the same in policing at the, at some of the higher ranks and some of the higher levels where it seems like people were in, acting in all impunity. And we, despite um, the feedback or despite the being forewarned of certain situations, they would still sometimes launch into some completely insane strategies. And then next thing you know, it would backfire and there was nothing, you know, nobody would ever pay for that. And I, um, I think it sends the wrong message from a leadership standpoint and it sends a wrong message, definitely sends a wrong or sent a wrong, a wrong message to the troops. But anyways, um, in terms of in Canada right now, you know, this place is, is, is kind of like, um, a jack in the box, you know, you, 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 you crank it and then something comes up and it's a big deal for, you know, a week or two. And next thing you know, you, you, somehow it completely disappears and and they're on to another bandwagon and it's then it was covid and then it's just been incessant over the course of the last six or seven years this country has switched from one cause to the next without real follow-up right so something is the most important thing ever and three weeks from now we don't even hear about it at all so it's a it's a different place and i think those are first world's problems right being overseas in a third world country within five minutes of landing there was automatic gunfire everywhere you know you you start realizing like hey man like maybe we're not that bad after all maybe we should stop complaining and 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 i don't want this to come across as as you know ethnocentrism or anything like that but it's a reality what were you seeing in haiti because someone said made a comment recently to me that they have no government anymore. I worked with some some Haitian guys um, quite a long time ago, right right when I was testing for my first firefighter job, um, and they they educated me on you know Papa Doc and I think Little Doc is with the 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 one that followed, and you know some of the corruption there, and some of the, you know you tie in some of the voodoo beliefs, and you know you can see how they were led, you know, and I mean that in a negative way, pulled down a, a path that that created kind of. Um, chaos there and a lot of violence out of gangs um what were you seeing now in in late 2021 over there mm-hmm. yeah i mean the, the the corruption path runs deep uh in haiti it's 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 a part of almost everyday life right and and great people there super warm community and it's 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 such a it's such a a, a weird concept that some of them are capable of such extreme violence on account of, you know, the collective or so they claim. Uh, and, and so there is factions and gangs and different areas of town and there's police blockades and, and, and regular gang blockades and all of which are no good. <laughs> and, uh, and there's just seemingly no real 
it's it's almost like guerrilla warfare you know there's 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 really not much rhyme or reason as to how the where the, the i don't want to call it a war but how the battle is waged you know like it's, it seems to be more territorial and it seems to be more and there's a lot of people caught in a crossfire and it's 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 a difficult it's a difficult place to to live in right now as we speak and of course the president being uh, executed really murdered uh, and yes there was some cor- some corruption issues in there and everything but uh, i think it just did a number on what was left of semblance of uh, of normalcy there right and so a lot of people have picked up arms that it'll be it'll be interesting to see where it goes but it it's gonna have to be a, a drastic and dramatic change over uh and i would i would venture out and say that it, they need to look at how deep corruption runs when corruption is not even referred to as corruption is referred to as business you you know what i mean like you know it runs you know it runs deep so now you, you whether or not the ability to to introspect at those depth is is going to be enough to salvage the country is is remains to be seen but man i i can tell you though it was my first time there apparently my my dad was from Haiti, which I've I've never known him, so I I have no idea, and I had no connection with the country. But this was my first time ever setting foot there, and uh, despite what was going on, you know, the people I interacted with were absolutely amazing, and that was the experience that was relegated to me from friends that have been on United Nations tours and policing as well and all this good stuff. So um, there's a constant. There are a lot of great people. A lot of I'm I'm you know, wishing them the best and hopefully can be, can be a part of it in some small measure. Well, it is so heartbreaking when you think about that one island is what two countries the Dominican Republic is the other side, yeah. you know, mm-hmm. and then where it's located, I mean, it could have a fruitful tourism industry. It could have cruise ships going. I know it does have cruise ships going in. I'm sure I think it's Lebedi, but I'm sure it's a very small, well-secured port that people, you know, arrive in. But yeah. And, you know, so we're not even talking about for example, the United States of America, this giant landmass. So, but you talk about the corruption as well. It's interesting how the UK, you know, Australia, America, whatever it is, we look down at countries. Oh, it's so corrupt there. And you're like, we take a step back and what you mean like people paying politicians so they can push through their, <laughs> their drugs or their industrialized farming or, you know, whatever it is. And you're like, we, like you said, business is a great description. We have it. They've just kind of dressed it up in something that's more palatable, but it's the same thing. They pay our politicians so they can do what they want to do. Yeah. Couldn't agree more. I think the impact on the collective being that it's a, a, a smaller circle, you know, is more evident, but you are absolutely correct. Um, there's no way to dress up certain things to make him look, to make them different. They might look different, but they won't be different. And, um, you know, I don't think that we as developed countries have the, the ability to perhaps, um, criticize or you know criticize some of the some of the third world countries because obviously 
their set of circumstances extremely different from ours and uh, and a lot of the, a lot of it is luck like when did you select where you were going to live you know or be raised or whatever so it's very difficult if you're born and raised there and that's all you know but the bringing whether the french or the the us or the or canadian perspective over to haiti is extremely difficult as i found out even with some of the stuff that i was teaching while i was there so it was very critical and important to understand the context in which you are demanding or trying to affect change so we're coming with our western perspective to a country like haiti and a lot of the things that we would like to see contextually just don't make sense so we need you know i think it's it's a difficult and for us to be picking the power and who's in power and those types of things just fuels adds fuels to the fire you know so we're gonna have to be as a as a collective we're gonna have to be very careful on what approach we take to help countries that we perceive need our help in in establishing democracy because it may not look exactly cookie cutter the way it looks here or how we'd like it to so the establishing the context and, and and working with the right people and let ultimately let them dictate who leads them and who um, is going to be the way forward. And I think there's a push for, for getting that done. Now, when I ask people, especially that were in Afghanistan, you know, and it's funny early in this podcast, I got like no response. And then the last couple of years, all of a sudden people are a lot more open but, you know, one lesser known fact is opium fields fund terrorism, you know, and the, the illicit drug trade. And I won't go down that road. We, you know, we hopped about that last episode. Um, but when you look at Haiti, you know, what is that thing? What, where is the money coming from that they're fighting over? What is that source that they're exporting, for example? I have no idea. I have no idea whatsoever what, what they're, uh, you know, I, I did, very sort of minimal research as I was on a time crunch to try to get a course training standard put together on short notice. But I did, you know, what is the situation now and what are some of the issues and is kind of what I focused on. But I have no idea what, where the money is coming from or where it's going. And, and, uh, if, you know, Evidently, there is money in the country, but if there is, it's not obvious as you're, as you're going around. And so I, uh, yeah, I can't, I can't really answer that. Yeah. Interesting. Uh, outside my field of expertise. <laughs> no, but the thing is you stood in that country and that's the same way as I asked the members of the military about what they saw when they were boots on the ground. You know, we get this, this little polished perspective that fits a certain narrative, but we don't normally hear from the people that were actually there and the, the highs and the lows and the pros and the cons and just the, the, dirty truth that is you know either a different country combat whatever it is mm -hmm. yeah i think i think in all fairness to establish a decent baseline i would have had to be in there for some time and i you know i was there for four days so it was really really quick trip in and out um you know and and we were taking in an armored from basically the the uh the airport to wherever our location was so i what i saw was really quick and in passing and in speaking to some of the local populace but if you were in a nine-month deployment you or a year deployment you'd have a ton of time to really you know get to know some of the locals get some of the information beyond the ground seeing what's happening seeing the news like reading doing all this good stuff but yeah i, I you know 
at this point in my career and at, at this point in my life is probably not a place that I'd spend a year in unless 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 there was a, a major major project that I was passionate about and interested in but certainly probably not <laughs> <laughs> well Seb, there's I, other destinations yes no there are there are and, and places that maybe you can affect change a little easier like for example your own community in America that'd be a good start Mm-hmm. <laughs> or <Canada. Exactly. laughs> yeah just just focus on yeah, it's interesting how everybody's so quick to jump to help everybody else and it's like hey uh guys can we take care of our you know and and it's not it's not not being socially conscious that there are problems everywhere else but it's like this here is what we need to be worried about because it affects everybody that we know and love and 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 so let's focus here and then what's left over so to speak let's 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 go out and help whoever we can if that's even you know a, a a real prospect yeah no i think so and like you said about you know the the corruption and thing and that kind of element we, that's what we need to fix right now you know you, you have the us for example coming to another country oh we're going to help you is that well you've got children murdering each other on the streets like maybe you should figure that out before you start coming over here and telling me how i should live my life so yeah i mean i I agree, but we have the resources to do so much good in the world. And that's mm-hmm. the thing. So if we can just get that community element back, that, that helping each other, being part of something greater, you know, solve some of our own woes first and then take all this incredible wealth that we have and start positively rippling that out to countries that need our help and truly help them, not put some dictator in because it's going to help our strategic outcome, but do it purely to help the people of that country. Maybe we could start with Mexico, you know, to remove the illicit drug trade and start helping those poor people. You know, yeah, I think that's that's absolutely, but it all starts, it starts in your home and then it starts in your community after that. Yeah, it does. And then the intent is also critically important, right? And the intent, you know, um, I, I like you a bit of an idealist where if 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 we acted a certain way, we'd have the ability to go down that route. But I think we are going to be hard pressed to find people that are going to prioritize the things that need to be prioritized people mainly <laughs> to 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 go down those routes, you know, how much good could we do if we didn't care who takes the credit? to begin with and and we know that political parties and 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 the likes are all about credits you know like who who's doing who's done what and why and for who and how is that impacting political survival and and, and these types of things so i think it's an ideal in an ideal world it, it would be that way we'll do it we do it and affect the collective positively on account of compassion and and care and i i don't think that you and i will see this in this lifetime but i i hope i'm wrong well, while we're on random tangents, one more thing I want to pull from your brain before I let you go. <laughs> um, I'm in a rush, you know. <laughs> so one thing that, again, c- coming out of Canada, especially that I'd be made aware of, is the the plight of some of the indigenous people and some of these, you know, horrendous things that we're finding in, in Canada's history. So have you had any experience? Has, has that crossed your path at all? Yeah, I mean, you know, a lot of the a lot of the issues and that we encountered um and i if i look and i can't speak for my organization but i will speak for me as a member of the organization a lot of the stuff preceded a lot of the events preceded you know two or three generations past you know so so now the question is and it's not about the deflection the question is is okay we can't affect 
what was done and some of the some of the horrible things but but there's there's a something that we need to understand as canadians is that the policy that were enacted on by the rcmp were voted by people that were elected in places they were elected by the populace right so so now what you have is population enacting or or um putting in power the people that enacted certain strategies that were enforced by the rcmp uh, and other police forces. So we actually own all of this as Canadians. It's not like, oh, look at what the RCMP did. Well, no, the RCMP was the enforcing body. So, I, and I'm not making excuses for that either. But the the dissociation and the deflection that's going on in the country is quite astonishing. If we vote for somebody and that person goes on a murderous rampage, not that that's precisely what happened, but I'm just making it extreme so that it, it kind of drives the point home. And I turn around and say, those people here were responsible for this. I have nothing to do with this. You know, it's the same hypocritical garbage than I eat meat every day, but I don't kill it. So I, I hate hunters, you know, like how does that even work? You, you're, you're still eating meat, you're still benefiting. So at the time that those, most of those things were occurring, the Canadian population was supportive of those initiatives. They were supportive of those, supportive of those politicians. And then all of this was enforced by the RCMP. You know, at the time, I was the police of jurisdiction. It's it, we all wear this. You know, how do we look at the individual pieces and and take blame away from others and send it send it to the policing body, which is normally the case. If the sky is blue, is generally a police fault. Um, but Internally, from my perspective, and I used to, when I I had the guys in a briefing, or we we once a year or something during Indigenous Day, we'd I'd have some pictures I bring I bring in, and it was like RCMP members say removing people from from their families to bring them to boarding schools or bring them to reservations or whatever the case may be, and I say have a look at those pictures, boys, and understand that this happened. This was us doing that. Let never, you know, let's let's never forget that, and and that is part of the reason why building the relationships with those communities is critical. Now there is current world affair in the indigenous world here in Canada with some of the blockades and some of the pipelines, but I can tell you it's a lot more complex than the media makes it look. So the media makes it look like again we have this, you know, uh, governing body or government that's oppressing indigenous people when in reality. And not that it's never occurring, but in reality, what we're seeing is there's a lot of dissension within the indigenous communities about certain projects. So you may have an indigenous community that's um, totally against the pipeline, but yet you have the other side where they're completely supportive, but that's never given any airtime, right? So it's always, so it makes it look always very one-sided and it isn't. You know, I've, there's a, a, a situation right now going on on, the, on Vancouver Island and uh, it's about logging. And a lot of the indigenous communities are telling people traveling from all over to come prevent logging. Like, hey, we want logging here. You, you know, there's benefits to us here. And, it's, and, and we don't want you coming here and speak on our behalf. But yet the press only gives the mic to, you know, a certain side. So now you're making a one-sided affair. And I think... We need to. There's a lot of problems that we have in this in society right now, and and one of which is our the way that we manage media, 
and really about all the sens sensationalism rather than objective journalism, which is essentially dead as far as I'm concerned. And when you see it, it's such a breath of you know <laughs> fresh air that you're like, oh man, who's that person? And they probably won't be employed very long. You know, they, it, it seems like everything has to feed the narrative, a certain narrative, right? And so it's very frustrating because I'm standing here going, why don't we do a press conference with this indigenous community who is supporting the project and so that the people outside looking in, looking at indigenous affairs in Canada, understand that there is various sides to those stories and some of which are within the indigenous communities. Not that we are standing there just oppressing them incessantly, you know? Yeah, no, and it's a really important um, perspective. And, you know, I think knowing or learning about what we did to some, you know, many, many indigenous tribes, whether it's up there or down here in the US, sadly, I, it, it doesn't seem to be discussed very much. I remember doing American history in school in England, and I think I learned more about Native Americans than I ever have seen, you know, talked about since I've lived here. So it's very interesting. But like you said, whether it's slavery, whether it's, you know, the, the horrors that happened to the Native Americans, um, we have to acknowledge it. But then, like you said, it, it, we have to move on. I mean, I clearly in my mind, I think of firefighters during the civil rights riots or, you know, protests or demonstrations or, you know, peaceful walks. But I can see firefighters, you know, hosing people in that. That's my profession. You know, that's a dark cloud over, over firefighters, I think. Um, but yeah, but not hanging on to that. And not constantly going like all white people are racist or, you know, all, all Europeans killed all Native American, whatever it is, whatever that, as you said, that tabloid headline narrative and moving on and being like, Hey, one thing that's definitely obvious here is governments can be horrendous, you know, so, and then what are we seeing right now? You know, more tyranny. So that we need to take, you know, hold in our, in our hand. But at the same time, if we, if we anchor ourselves to what happened, then we're never going to be able to move forward either. So we acknowledge what happened. We learn from it. As you said, we think about who should be accountable if it rears its ugly head now. But, you know, we we have to move forward. And I agree with you completely. If there's, for example, that one case, there's two voices, then you bring them both on. You know, same with the vaccine. Like I told you, I got a doctor on here that with his own eyes was seeing people dying of COVID. And I've got someone on here who's a firefighter that just been fired because of vaccine mandates. Two very different discussions, ultimately based on the same thing. They don't want people to die or lose their jobs or starve to death or take their own life. But, you know, kind of polarizing views. But if you don't have those, those two perspectives, you don't get the whole story and therefore you can't move forward. Mm -hmm. I think it, it really simplifies the intellectual processing, you know, for most people to have less information. You know, it makes it it makes it easier to paint things into a little box and, and OK, this is where I keep this information and this is what my opinion on this matter is. Whereas if you have the truly informed conversation, a lot more intellectual capacity and <laughs> intellectual engagement is needed to actually form a, or have an evidence-based opinion. And I think that humans being lazy by nature, we're trying to shortcut what we know and when we know it. And, and the brain will just make the rest of this stuff up, you know? And, and it's very, very, it's costing us massively right now with, as we see the, the propensity for polarization and all levels of, of whatever, it doesn't even matter what the, the, the field of endeavor is, is this an 
unheard and unseen polarization. Whether or not that's truly the case it's, or, or what's reflected from the media, um, I think it's a little bit of both. But you're absolutely correct. I think taking the time, if you're going to have a passionate conversation or if you're if you're going to have a, if you're going to try to make an informed evidence-based decision you are going to have to listen to the people that speak the other side of what if whatever it is that you are on and be truly objective and that's and it's an interesting concept it, it's and i think of you know a course i was on many many years ago um in policing it was an investigative course believe it or not even though i spent not much time investigating anything um but the but the the, the premise was there is so much bias in police investigation and how do we recognize it and how do we address it? And it's it's kind of the same. Having the ability to put your own feelings and emotions, which humans are not being 90% emotion, we just react emo emotionally to a lot of things that we shouldn't. And then really have the capacity to look at things objectively. And even if somebody says something truly damning, we don't like, there may be a piece of information in there that's valuable for me. And that's why I really like when people were having conversations and, you know, oh, I listened to this person or that person's podcast, but I stopped because they said X, Y, and Z. I'm like, okay, so wait a minute. You you lost all of this rest of the valuable information on account of one statement that the person made that you disagreed with. You know, it just doesn't make any sense at all. And how are you going to tiptoe through life making sure that what everybody that surrounds you says is directly in line with your conceptual, you know, thought process, like, please stop, you know, and ultimately I think having the ability to sift through the information, take what's, what works and, and discard what doesn't is, is, is the true strength of, of, of doing the research. Right. Absolutely. So it's, it's, it's really interesting what's going on right now. I hope that, um, yeah, somehow we're in a better place shortly. Yeah, no, I I think it's conversations like this that are you know part of the solution. I'm not saying you know me or, but getting people like you on with all these different worldviews, all this different professional experience with you know own trials and tribulations that you've been through, and I've got people on here that are very left leaning, very right leaning, Muslim, Christian, you know, all all walks of life, and like you said, there's so much value to everyone's story. I don't agree with everyone that comes on. They don't agree with me, you know. Um, a lot of time, uh, but where those lines intersect, where we do agree, do you want your kids to be safe? Do you want them to be fed? Do you want to be clothed? Do you want them to not die in a school? You know, all these things that we all agree in, that's what I see that we got to do. We, we, we find our commonalities and then we start reaching out. Oh, okay, here's where we disagree, but that's fine because 70% of what we just talked about, we're both all in. And I think that's, that's how we flip the script. Right now, it's all about that, that, you know, minutia that everyone disagrees with and they're fighting tooth and nail over 10% of what they disagree with rather than a majority of what they actually would agree with. Yeah, I agree. I mean, it's, it's all about, common ground and and you know pulling ahead in a similar direction and and understanding that there's various ways to do things the beauty of this is we can actually establish character so we once we've once we've established character on each other you know and and and, and we know that 70% of what we are rooting for is consistent between the two say groups if we are dealing with two groups um, then it's it's easier not to discount everything that they that they say but that's not what's currently occurring what's currently occurring is 
even if somebody says something that's truly sensical and I know it to be the case, I will, by virtue of the fact that it's them, I will go against it, you know, and, and I'm prepared to compromise even reality <laughs> uh, to accomplish that. So you're absolutely right. Finding common ground, pulling in the same direction, like the basics of leadership, right? Of inspirational leadership. How do we make that happen? You know, and that's until you guys and us have meaningful leaders in place, uh, it'll be it'll be different. It'll be different to try to do that on the collective side. But at the same time, we, as people engaged in um, community activities such as this podcast, have the ability to impact it from the inside as well. So we need to start doing that because if we wait for somebody else to take care of that, it's never happening. So I I, I agree and I I appreciate you for that. Yeah, well, thank you so much for yet another great conversation. I agree with you completely. I think we're both incurable optimists. So I believe that there's change. And I, I think that there's there's going to be a pushback. I think the pendulum has swung so far the other way. People are now going to start seeking good information, realizing that there are ways of of learning without Fox or CNN. You know, you can go to documentaries, you can go to podcasts. There's a thing called a book you can read, things like that. <laughs> um, so, so, but I just want to thank you though, mate, because it's been, you know, such a great conversation again. You know, you sharing your journey, um, has been incredibly powerful. And, and, and just the mindset, the mindset you fostered through your career that set you up for success when you transitioned, that same mindset that allowed you to, to process, you know, the trauma that you were put through physically and mentally has been so much value again. But I, I, I thank you for this conversation and I hope that whatever decision that ends up being, that you get it soon so you can move forward and, you know, turn the page in the next chapter. Yeah, thanks a lot, man. I um, that's the plan. <laughs> that's the plan. Yeah.